In number 901912, Stephanie Nordlinger against Kenneth Hahn. Mr. Hall. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The principal question presented by this case is whether California's welcome stranger method violates the Equal Protection Clause by taxing newly purchased property at many times higher rates than property owned by longtime owners without any possibility of seasonably attaining rough equality in tax treatment. Just three years ago in the Allegheny decision, this court unanimously concluded that there was no rational basis to justify welcome stranger assessment practices. The fact that California's welcome stranger system is formally embodied in the state law is not a valid distinction. We say it can't make a difference. The respondents say it must make a difference. We did reserve that question in the Allegheny case, did we not? Yes, you did. And for argument's sake, let's assume that there might be a difference and and look to see whether there should be a difference uh, based on whether there are any practical differences in operation or in effects or in uh, justifications. In terms of the practical operations, the two welcome stranger systems function in an identical uh, fashion. Basically, they both set up two groups of taxpayers. There's a favored group of taxpayers who are going to pay very low effective rates of tax based on uh, low assessed values. Then there's the disfavored group of taxpayers who are the new buyers who are going to be coming in to the system with with assessments based on high current market values and therefore will be paying higher taxes and higher effective tax rates. Of course, these are not static groups, are they? I mean, no, that's exactly today you may be a, a continuing resident, tomorrow decide to move. So it's not as though uh, uh, citizens are identified permanently in, in one or the other category. No, that, that, that is true that citizens are not identified permanently. And indeed, in terms of there being uh, static groups, one of the interesting and curious things about the welcome stranger phenomenon is that it links these two groups together by having the change of ownership provision Uh, give higher tax assessments to the new groups and the new buyers, the new owners, and having the flat cap of 2% on the assessments for the old buyers. So the two groups are intimately linked together, and over time, as the tax rates change, as, as the assessments go up for the new buyers and as new money comes into the system, the effective tax rates for the long time group is going to get lower and lower and lower. So It's a dynamic system that over time inevitably results in a skewing of the system so that the uh, effective tax rates of the low tax group get lower and lower and lower. And the result of that is that you get these enormous disparities that you found in the Allegheny case where you had 35 to 1 uh, disparities that the court characterized as gross disparities. And in California, our Court of Appeal took judicial notice of the fact that our common gross disparities are of that same uh, magnitude. And indeed, the California Supreme Court just last month, although it didn't take this case up for review, did characterize those kinds of disparities and the way they come about as a wild card system. And that's easily seen if you just look at how it treats like taxpayers, like properties, in a different way. You could have identical houses next door to each other and they would be taxed dramatically differently. One taxpayer well, Mr. Hall, in West Virginia, I suppose the state law required that properties be uh, put on the rolls at uh, current value. Uh, 
No, Your Honor, uh, that the, the state law uh, was a current market value system, but the uh, state court said that that current market value system could be coordinated with a welcome stranger system, and that this welcome stranger system that was being practiced by but the at least assessors, the state law in West Virginia said you will place properties on at uh, market value. Yes. And in California, the Constitution has been amended to provide something other than that. That's true. Acquisition value. That's true, but... And how do we normally measure an equal protection claim? What standard do we apply? When... A rational basis test normally? Yes. Yes. And that's what you applied in Allegheny. And do you think that uh, an argument can certainly be mounted that California's scheme is rationally related to the goal of preventing uh, people on a fixed income from losing their homes? Uh, no, Your Honor. Uh, uh, there is, that is the problem with the California tax uh, system. The, uh, there is no, first of all, there's no uh, goal of, of taxpayers not being taxed out of their homes. That's not a criteria that's in the welcome stranger system. The taxpayers being taxed out of their home is, is, being, is addressed in California now as it was before Proposition 13 by the so-called circuit breaker legislation that provides tax relief to taxpayers who are in such financial distress that they might lose their home. Proposition 13 does not uh, touch on that issue. What Proposition 13 is about is, and, and this is the respondent's description of it, and I believe all the amici say the same thing, is uh, giving tax relief to existing homeowners who are finding assessments rising and finding themselves taxed into financial distress because of the hyperinflation in the real estate market. And what they claim has happened is that now the tax taxes have fallen and that now it's a better system and, and a better oh, world. And, and a, you say that that doesn't meet the rational basis test. I say that's not a, a valid description of the California Welcome Stranger system. The California Welcome Stranger system does not simply lower taxes for longtime owners. It intimately links the tax breaks to the long-time owners with the tax benefits, I mean, the ta with the tax burdens on the new buyers, so that there is this correlation that is irrational. And it's well, why, why, why is it irrational? Why isn't it perfectly rational for California to say that whenever Proposition 13 was passed, uh, we had a lot of people who bought homes at much below their present assessed value. They'd anticipated a certain amount of real property tax, now they're paying three or four times as much real property tax. Yes, it, it's irrational for the same reason that the court stated in Allegheny. You well, have to make a comparison of, of, in, in, of the In Allegheny, we had quite a different situation, Mr. Hahn. It was almost impossible to say what a rational justification for the West Virginia system was, since what the county assessor was doing was squarely contrary to state law. The West Virginia court did not find it so. The West, and, and the West Virginia court said it was consistent with state law and could be reconciled with state well, law. Well, uh, but I think if you'll read the opinion from this court, the thrust of it was that there, there, was, there was no justification. That's exactly right. The court could not find a justification in the equality principles that were established by the current market value system that the assessor claimed to meet. And also they were the court applied only in one county in West Virginia. Yes, that's true. And this particular assessor was instituting a discriminatory system, and that system was what was at issue in the Allegheny case. And you looked at the discriminatory system. You looked to see if it could be reconciled with equality principles of the current market value system or discriminatory principles of the welcome stranger system that was at issue. 
and you found that it didn't further either set of principles. There was no rational relationship to either equality purposes or discriminatory purposes, and, and therefore you found it completely irrational, and it did not pass muster under the rational basis test. It's very unusual for the court to find that, but this is a very unusual system. This is the system that the Professional Assessors Association, which is the main professional group, condemns as the most patently inequitable tax assessment system that exists. That it's inherently rational for a state to uh, conclude, given the pattern of our economy in, in the last few generations, that there is a constant inflation uh, and that this means that the longer you've held your home, the more unrealized value you have in the home? And no, that's that precisely, precisely what happens under the welcome stranger system. Would, would, would it be rational for the state to make that judgment as an economic matter, that this is what happens? The longer you have your home, the more unrealized value you have in that home. Yes, that, that it's a rational judgment and it's... You say it is irrational? No, it is rational. It is rational. Yes. But the, the welcome stranger system takes that premise, which is merely a description of, of the fact. I mean, it is true that the longer you own your house in an inflationary economy, the lower your assessed value will be as compared to the market value. But that's not the issue. The issue is the welcome stranger system links the property taxes so that one group is down here with low assessed values and low effective tax rates, and another group in the same house, it could be next door, is paying high effective tax rates and high taxes. And there must be some description for the reason for the difference. Somewhere in the rational basis test, you need to have someone identify a legitimate objective for why these taxpayers who are paying more should be subsidizing in a direct one-to-one -one relationship, dollar for dollar, the people who are getting subsidized. Because they have less unrealized value. Again, that's simply a description of what is the system. The question is, if they have less unrealized value, what does that mean in practical terms? What it means is, these, the people who are getting hurt the most under this system are the ones who are hurt the most because of this volatile inflationary market. The very real estate market that Proposition 13 was put in to deal with is the market that the people who get the high taxes are the, the biggest victims of. They're the ones who pay these absurd... Oh, what is the uh, practical effect of Proposition 13? Has it deadened the real estate market in California? Uh, I think there are different opinions of what it's done to the real estate market in California. And where, where did your client uh, live before she bought her home? Uh, she lived in Los Angeles as a renter and could not afford to buy a home. Well, she knew what she was getting into. She did, unfortunately, realize that she was going to have to pay more taxes. She, was, she knew she was, first of all, going to have to stretch and pay a very high mortgage rate for a very modest house. And that's the, that's the reality in Los Angeles, and I'm sure the court is aware of that. And you can see that just from our, the pictures in our brief of the tiny Venice bungalow that has a $300,000 assessed value on it because that's the current market value. So I suppose there's no chance of having Proposition 13 repealed by the electorate, is there? Unfortunately, the Court of Appeal in our case commented on exactly the problem of the, the very, very high vested interest that you get from all the people who are benefiting from the system on the benefit side with these huge tax breaks that they're getting that are directly pulled from the people who are being burdened. 
And, the, and if I could just get to that relationship between the people who are benefited and the people who are burdened, the rational basis test says there has to be a rational relationship. Well, there is a rational relationship, Mr. Hall. It seems to me you're insisting that it not only be rational, but be perfect in response to the question of, of whether it didn't assure that uh, people would not be uh, taxed out of their homes so that they could no longer uh, you know, pay the taxes and, and therefore have to move. You said, well, there are other ways of taking care of that. Well, there are indeed, but we've never insisted that uh, in, in, in any public policy field, the, uh, the state has to choose the most precise way of solving the problem. Now, that's certainly the case. This is not, it's not very precise, but you must admit it solves that problem, and it seems to be the main problem at which it's, it's been addressed, that people can't keep up with, uh, with, with uh, constantly increasing taxes on unrealized gains in their home, and therefore, to solve that problem... We, we have this new tax system. It's rough and ready. It's not perfect, but close it, enough it, for government work. It largely, depends, <laughs> it, it, it largely depends on how you define the problem. If you define the problem as saying, let's, ha- let's give low taxes increasingly to people who are existing owners, it does a fine job of that. That is the system. But if you define the problem as saying, why is there this relationship that's a topsy-turvy relationship, that's the irrationality. It's not simply that that a state or some body somewhere has said it's a good idea to have high taxes on some people and low taxes on other people. The taxes are linked in a very odd way, and the, and the, and the burden class is the, is the class that's stretched right now for their, to pay these mortgage payments. They have very little equity. Your, your client, of, you say your client really had to stretch to, to buy this house. Absolutely. But she knows she won't be stretched any further, doesn't she? She knows that next year it's not going to be anything more than 2% worse and the next year after that, no more than 2% worse. Isn't that some advantage to the people of California? She, she knows that, but she also knows that in the meantime, she is paying enormous oh. subsidies to people in an unfair way because she is in a little modest house and she's paying the same taxes that a, a taxpayer in Malibu on the ocean in a fabulous lot is paying. What There's she no is getting in exchange for that is the assurance that that little house, however much it cost her, is going to be hers, and she's going to be able to afford it as long as she has her current level of income. And the people of California say that's a good trade. We're willing to have the one for the other. She may disagree with it, but why is that an irrational deal to make? Well, if you, if, first of all, because she's been picked out as a, as a person who is in no better shape to bear these burdens than the people who are getting the benefits. And who are getting the benefits? Let's look at that side. The people who are getting the the biggest benefit, the people with the lowest effective tax rate, are the people who are just like Stephanie Nordlinger, but they're living next door to her and they bought at $15,000 or $25,000, and they have had huge appreciation and value in the meantime. So they have very low effective tax rates and huge appreciation and value. And if you go back in time, you get the most antiquated assessed values, and and, and, and you get back to 1925 or 1935, and you could say, well, what is there about the ability to pay of those people that we can tell in comparison to Stephanie Nordlinger? You can tell nothing. It's a well, you can system. tell something, can't you? Can't you say that those people have the greatest percentage, as a general rule, those people have the greatest percentage of their wealth uh, in, un- in unrealized value? And isn't it rational for the state to say that as a general premise of the taxing scheme, people with a large percentage of wealth in unrealized value are less able to keep up with uh, uniform current tax tax, uh, rates 
uh, than people with a comparatively small percentage in unrealized value. That's rational, isn't it? No, the very irrationality of, of that premise is demonstrated by the fact that the people who live in Beverly Hills in the mansions, in the pictures in the brief, are in the highest appreciation areas in Los Angeles. And because those areas have, have skyrocketed in appreciation, they are paying the lowest effective tax rates. Now, there's nothing you can say that indicates that the people living in mansions in Beverly Hills who have enormous wealth in those homes and presumably what it, what it took to get there and keeping pace with inflation, etc., there's nothing that you can say that those people are worse able to pay taxes than the, the people who are in the Venice bungalow. Well, how about, the, how about, the, people, how about the people in the middle? Uh, I assume there's some kind of a middle ground between the, the bungalows and the mansions, uh, and, and just taking them as kind of a standard to start with, can you not say uh, that, in fact, it is a rational premise to say that the greater the percentage of wealth in unrealized value, uh, the less the capacity to keep up with an otherwise uh, even and uniform tax rate well, based on, on fair market value? Interestingly isn't, enough, that, isn't that true? Interestingly enough, the people in the, people in the middle are the people who still own their homes uh, that owned them in 1978. Well, there are I'm, no people I'm sure, in the I'm sure that's, that's probably true, but what's that got to do with the answer to my question? Isn't, isn't, isn't it still a rational basis for the system to make the assumption that I just expressed? I don't think it's rational to make the assumption that people who live in Beverly Hills mansions... I didn't ask you about Beverly Hills mansions. I asked you for kind of the, the person in the middle. Somewhere between the mansion and the bungalow. Maybe we're trying to find a standard taxpayer here, uh, at least as a, as a peg to judge rationality. And with respect to that standard taxpayer, isn't it fair to say that the more wealth is unrealized, the less capacity to pay out money? No, I, I, I don't think so. Even, even if you're talking about a 3-to-1 disparity rather than a 15-to-1 disparity at the end, there's, there's nothing to justify why one group who's coming in who's even more strapped to pay the higher mortgage should be paying at the higher rate than the, the, the favored group. Isn't it a pretty good bet that if I can spend the higher amount of money, uh, admitting that I will borrow some, but with the capacity to borrow some, isn't it a pretty good bet that I probably have a capacity to raise more cash on an annual basis and that I probably have uh, an income sufficient to support a higher cash payment? Isn't, isn't, there, isn't it rational to assume there's a correlation there? I think it's rational to assume that the person who has the bigger equity, who right now is being favored by Proposition 13, can refinance. Yes. They have the, the, the ability to, to refinance. In, in other words, in effect, you're, you're saying that the, that, the, uh, that the state is wrong in assuming that the, uh, that the older homeowner should not constantly increase mortgage debt in order to pay taxes. No, no, because they're, they're, they also have the benefit of inflation, which which the welcome stranger system doesn't take into account, etc. Again, the irrationality of the system can be seen, and, and here's another very good example of it, in the fact that two-thirds of the property value that's underassessed in the state of California is commercial property. And the one thing you can say is that the current market values of commercial property do relate to their ability to gen generate current income. Mr. Mr. Uh, uh, Hall, in cases like Lenhausen versus Lakeshore Auto, we have said that the standard of rationality for reviewing state tax schemes is the very lowest. Uh, yes. uh, you know, the fact you can poke holes 
and make other arguments that the legislature could have done this or it wasn't complete here or there's a big gaping hole here doesn't mean it's irrational under that sense. So so long as there's some rational purpose that the legislature is serving. Uh, I take it your, your answer to all these questions is that no reasonable person could ever have concluded that this was a sensible taxing scheme. Well, I think that the people who are getting the benefits of the taxing scheme think there's perfect rationality to it. Any time you have a taxing scheme or a change in a taxing, some people are going to benefit, others are, are not going to benefit. There's no way in the world to prevent that. And we don't throw out taxing schemes because there's a large group of people who are hurt. Absolutely. That it, the court's rational basis test is a deferential test, but it is nevertheless a test. And you, you, have, you can't just say that because one group has been chosen by another group to bear the burden of increased taxes that are going to directly subsidize the favored group, that there is necessary, uh, necessarily rationality or legitimacy to the public policies that are being served. You have to, under the rational basis test, take a look at it and see, is there a rational purpose being served? Now, Mr. Lee's brief, the respondent's brief, they have not tried to... Uh, point out reasons why that link between the two groups is rational. The authors of Proposition 13, they have given a reason. And they said, we picked out the uh, new buyers to bear the, and recent buyers to bear the brunt of the system and link, link it so that we'll get benefits every time their, their equities go up, their, their market values go, the, the regular market value goes up. We're going to, uh, uh, we chose that method and that group of taxpayers because they were there. That, that's as simple as their explanation. We couldn't keep our taxes low for us and still have the government give us services unless we found someone to uh, bear the burden. And they found the new buyers. They were the convenient target. But there's no legitimate public purpose in that. And, and Mr. Lee's briefs and the, and the respondents have not tried to make an argument that there is a legitimate public purpose. Why is there ever a legitimate public purpose in assessing a tax on some things rather than other things? I mean, every jurisdiction taxes some things, it doesn't tax other things. What, what is legitimate public purpose except because they're there? Is, is, is that wrong? I, I don't understand. Well, you, anytime you have a tax or any other discriminatory classification that the government is undertaking, choosing one group to bear ta high taxes and, and another group getting benefited, Right. There has to be some legitimacy, some rationality to that. But is there really? I mean, so, yes. Uh, except the, the fact that we've chosen to tax this. Suppose I, I, a, a, a jurisdiction chooses to tax milk. It doesn't have taxes on other kinds of food, but it chooses to tax milk. Is that bad? No, that wouldn't be bad why, at all. Why wouldn't it be bad? As long as they do it in a rational way. This court has said there is Rational wide. because they decided they want to tax milk. Well, if, if they want to and there is a rational reason for it, this court has said repeatedly that the, that the, the states and local uh, people have wide discretion in making classifications. But this court also held in the Allegheny case that the welcome stranger method, the way it's linked, the way it works, the arbitrariness of it, the, uh, in our case where you have commercial property that is being subsidized by people living in tiny bungalows and the commercial property has current income flows that are equal in one year to the entire value of the bungalow that is subsidizing them? I can understand milk rash. drinkers making this same argument, you know, saying these people over here are drinking wine, uh, you know, it's just flowing like water, and we can't, uh, 
But that's, that's too bad. Uh, the, the, you know, they've chosen to tax the one and not tax the other. Suppose this tax had been on, square, on a square footage basis. Uh, uh, couldn't it have, uh, have been just as unfair? Well, a quantified so ten, tax... Ten square feet in Beverly Hills is the same as the ten fer- square feet where, where your client has her bungalow. Yeah. A, a, a quantified tax can have some unfairness to it around the edges, but that would still be judged by the rational basis test. And if you and had... That might be bad then. Huh? Ah, yeah. If you had, for example, commercial property paying the same tax... As, as, the, as the bungalow owner, you might say, well, what's the purpose of this tax? Why, why are we linking these two together when it's a wildly different uh, situation? There still would have to be a rational... So basis. your principle really is that there has to be equality somehow. You cannot tax... It's the Equal Protection Clause's principle. It's not my principle. Yes, but well, what the Equal Protection Clause is, is, is not, not that, that there has to be equality in taxation or equality in, in, in treatment. It's that the law has to be applied... Equally, whatever the law is, you can't give somebody a special exemption from the law. But if the law is you pay taxes on milk, you pay taxes on milk, and people who don't use milk don't pay taxes, and that's not inequality. But this court has never found a tax on milk to be to flunk the rational basis test. But the court found the welcome stranger method to flunk the rational basis test. I submit that they're very different. And Mr. Chief Justice, if I could reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. Hall. Uh, Mr. Lee, we'll hear from you. The legal protection analysis of this case is just as simple as it is compelling. There is no suspect classification. There is no fundamental right. So the question is not whether California could have done it some other better way or whether the way that it chose is even good policy. The only question is whether California's acquisition value assessment system furthers some legitimate state purpose, and clearly it does. For reasons that have already been identified by Justice O'Connor and other members of the court, this was a very serious problem with which California was dealing. Uh, people had uh, remarkable increases in their balance sheet, but they didn't have the corresponding money to pay uh, the corresponding increases in taxes. And over a period of 10 years, prior to 1978, the legislature tried no fewer than 19 times to deal with the problem, but none was really effective because none attacked the problem at its core, which was a combination of unusually escalating real estate prices in the state of California in the 1960s and 1970s, coupled with a current value assessment property tax scheme. California voters adopted a four-part response, and the part that's at issue here is the one that simply says, for the first time in history, so far as I know, and California is the only state that's done it, in response to a correspondingly serious problem, we're just going to unhitch our property tax assessment from current value. And instead, we're going to tie it basically to an acquisition value basis. Key to the analysis of this case is the fact that the California courts, Mr. Hall, to my astonishment, purports to have found what the true basis of this, of this uh, Proposition 13 really was. And he said that uh, the Jarvis and Grand groups have themselves identified that they have just found a way that they could tie this, uh, that they could shift their uh, tax to someone else. That is not the purpose. Uh, I invite the court to read the pages of the Gan Jarvis briefs uh, to which he cites, and they don't say that at all. But in any event, fortunately, what we do have is a statement by the California Supreme Court of the three purposes, perfectly legitimate purposes, uh, for Proposition 13. The first one is to prevent the taxation of unrealized appreciation in the value of property. And, of course, that basically got at the problem. And the second is provide for certainty in the amount of taxes that a person was going to have to pay by time 
the amount of the taxes basically to the amount that that person was willing to pay at the time that he or she bought the property. You know, uh, the problem that they were dealing with was that the, the property owners had no control. That's why they were losing their homes. They had no way to control uh, what the uh, future increase in t- property taxes is. But... Well, they, 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 they certainly could have, by uh, insisting that the local and state uh, governing bodies spend less money. That is correct. That would have been another solution. But the one they chose was this one. Um, and that choice inevitably placed the burden on a different group of people. That is correct. Yeah. But, Justice Stevens, if the new test is... Does it place a different burden on some other people? Then the Equal Protection Clause is going to cut a swat through our federal and state taxation laws that's going to make Sherman's march through Georgia look like a Sunday picnic because those kinds of anomalies abound, abound uh, throughout our tax laws. Uh, You don't say this this system abounds throughout the state, does it? No, but you look at... uh, There are anomalies, there are inequities, there are windfalls throughout the federal income tax code, and necessarily so. And that's why for a century and a quarter, the rule has been that unless it really is invidious, and unless there is no conceivable... This is where the no conceivable uh, approach to uh, to rational basis really had its beginning. Because why wouldn't that uh, conceivable test have been satisfied in the West Virginia case? For this reason, as the same I, arguments could have been made there. Yeah. And I'm not going to be presumptuous enough to tell you what the underlying basis for the... Uh, but I do have my own, uh, I do have my own idea. Uh, take it in two steps. You start from the premise, of course, that what you have to do, first of all, is identify what is the state's end, what is its objective. And then you ask, is there a sufficiently tight fit between the means and the end? The very opening sentence in the Allegheny-Pittsburgh case states, and I assume with good reason, that the West Virginia Constitution commits the state of West Virginia to a market-based value system. Now, my analysis of that is that there is just no way that you can satisfy that fit once you start from the premise, the fit between the means and the end, when you start from the premise that the end is uh, a market-value-based system. Uh, You just can't say that... But, Mr. Lee, if if you base it on the difference between the state law in West Virginia and California... What do you do with the dictum from the Sunday Lake Iron Company case that your opponents quoted at page 25 of their brief, and you didn't even mention in your brief? You know what I'm referring to? That I still goes referring to doesn't matter whether it's by the express terms oh, of the statute oh. or by its improper execution through duly constituted agents. Yes. You think there does? Well, I think we do. We don't refer specifically to that language. But no, that is a that fundamental way. difference in approach between our opponents and us as to the analysis of this case in particularly with regard... But do you think that's a correct statement of the law? Of course it is, but it has nothing to do with this case. And let me tell you why. If you start from the premise, as my opponents do, that any scheme that is not tied to uh, market value is unconstitutional, then it doesn't matter whether that comes about uh, by constitutional amendment, by an erratic... Uh, operation, an erratic practice of the assessor or anyone else. And that is necessarily their premise. I'll get to that in a minute. That is necessarily their premise, that the only constitutionally acceptable scheme is one that ties to, um, uh, to market value. Now, if you start from that premise, then, of course, those cases become relevant, that it doesn't matter how it comes about. If, on the other hand, your basis for analysis is the rational basis test, and you ask, first of all, what was California trying to do here? And then you ask, is there some reasonable fit between 
Proposition 13 and what they were trying to do, then it does matter. It does matter, uh, the difference between California's Constitution and West Virginia's Constitution, because it is crucial because it identifies the different purposes, and the purpose itself also provides the baseline by which you judge the tie, the necessary fit uh, between those, uh, those two schemes. What the case really comes down to, what the case really comes down to, is whether California is constitutionally entitled to adopt a different scheme than West Virginia. And I think the hardest part of our case is kind of the common sense, intuitive, practical one, that for centuries, going back to England, we've been accustomed to anything that is called a property tax has to be tied to current value. And this is the first time in history that any taxing jurisdiction has uh, unhitched itself from that kind of value. Well, but Mr. Lee, in, in the Allegheny case, the opinion says the constitutional requirement is the seasonable attainment of a rough equality in the tax treatment of similarly situated property owners. Is that a valid statement? Of course it is. Anything that comes and to the And how does Proposition 13 meet that? <laughs> in this way, that the seasonable equality in the case of California, is accomplished against an entirely different background. Uh, that is the background of the different policy that California has adopted than was the case in uh, West Virginia. And that statement, of course, in Allegheny-Pittsburgh was made in the context of a value-based uh, system. Let's assume, Justice O'Connor. Yes. Uh, that the, the California treatment is a seasonable attainment of equality? Well, I really think that that word seasonable means, it just recognizes that even with a current value system, it's going to take some time to make some adjustments. And if I can just drop a footnote and say that we've got big problems in this country, if it is true that the only constitutionally acceptable scheme is current value, because even in California and other places, uh, you never have a, a complete, uh, you never have a complete one for one because of the cycles. Uh, that are required uh, to make these assessments. But what that refers to is that with a current value system, it's going to take some time to make these adjustments, just because it takes some time for the assessor to get around and make his appraisals. But the big question... Mr. Lake, b before you get off uh, um, Allegheny-Pittsburgh, uh, suppose the, the, the West Virginia legislature in Allegheny-Pittsburgh had, had passed a statute that said, uh, yes, we, we know we have a current market value system, but, but uh, elderly people who um, uh, shouldn't be assessed on their current value, and, and uh, we think this is a competing state policy, and although we, we are using a current market value system, uh, the, uh, 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 the elderly uh, should not be taxed on their uh, unrealized income. And they pass a statute to that effect. Now, would we strike that statute down because it does not... Uh, have a rational basis given the constitutional uh, prescription of the West Virginia Constitution? I would surely hope not, Justice. Okay, now what if, uh, what if the tax assessor makes the same conclusion and just doesn't, uh, doesn't move against elderly people? And you know what my next question is going to be. What if the tax assessor does what the tax assessor did in, uh, in uh, Allegheny-Pittsburgh? In fact, he made himself the individual judgment that uh, although we have a general uh, value system, uh, uh, I'm going to modify it by uh, some unappreciated income theory. I'm not going to charge those people who uh, haven't gotten the money out of their land yet. It feels most comfortable, most logical to me, in light of what this court has said about rational basis and particularly in tax cases and the difficulties that you just mentioned, to draw that line 
between those instances where the official policy makers of the state, the legislature or the constitution makers, have set forth the policy. I think the real, the real, uh, one of the real vices in uh, the Webster County case was that you just had a runaway assessor who, in the face of what uh, the state had done, had said, I'm just not going to follow. And the, well, the effect of the runaway assessor was that um, taking Justice Scalia's uh, hypothesis that in West Virginia, as it were, some young taxpayers, to use his term, were subsidizing the old taxpayers, and other young taxpayers weren't. That's why there was no systemic fairness. And you're, Yes, Justice Souter, and you will always have that. Now, you look at the amicus briefs that have been filed in the... I'm not sure what, what your equal protection principle is. Is, is it your submission that there's a violation of equal protection if the state official does not enforce the state law as written? Well, I would prefer to look at it, Justice Kennedy, through a slightly different prism. Uh, that's the approach that my opponent takes. My view is that what you ask is, has there been a legitimate uh, uh, a policy identified by the official policymakers of the state? And then secondly, does the... Uh, does the particular scheme at issue pursue, and is it reasonably contemplated to achieve that objective? Mr. No, but the, 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 the hypothetical put to you by Justice Scalia, and I think echoed by Justice Souter, and the one I'm interested in, is what happens if the official refuses to enforce the state policy as written? Is that a violation of equal protection? I think that falls closer to the Allegheny-Pittsburgh side of the line. And the reason is because you then... Don't an individual can certainly violate the equal protection clause, and is not doing it pursuant to an official state policy, so that you don't have the fit between means and end. And, and what is the best authority you have for that proposition, other than Allegheny? I cannot think of any other than just the general ones that establish the uh, rational basis test and the general approach. Uh, uh, well, and and in and the language in Allegheny Pittsburgh that because says it that seems to me that that is a. a, a a far more vast expansion of equal protection jurisprudence uh, than the petitioner's submission here, which is that equal property, that property tax should be treated uh, uh, equally for similarly situated persons. It, it seems to me that that is, is a much less sweeping equal protection analysis. Well, maybe I don't understand your position, and if I don't, I really do want to understand it. But in Allegheny-Pittsburgh, the court went out of its way to say that they had looked and were not able to find any indication that there had been a de facto adoption by the state of West Virginia of this as their policy. And under just... We don't want to review every state decision to decide whether every state administrative official is being faithful to the Constitution. Why, wasn't it key to, uh, to Allegheny-Pittsburgh that this was just one county? Might we not have let that, 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 that scheme stand in Allegheny-Pittsburgh if it had been adopted just as contrarily to the state constitution by the state attorney general and had been applied uniformly throughout the state by all county assessors at the direction of the attorney general, who, who, is, not, who is not the people and who is not an authoritative expositor of, of state policy, but, but at least it would make it uniform throughout the state, right? Yes. Well, isn't that an adequate ex explanation of Allegheny-Pittsburgh? It may well be. The people who really know what underlies Allegheny Pittsburgh, of course, are the people who, uh, whom I'm facing right now. But I will simply say this. That's right. That's right. But I will simply say this, that of the, all of the many possible explanations for Allegheny Pittsburgh, 
you come back to this basic proposition, that what California did here, and that's what we're looking at, was to take hold of a very serious problem, to deal with it in a responsible way, and what they did squarely responds uh, to the problem they were, that they were facing, and under the equal protection, under the rational basis test, particularly in tax cases. Can I ask this question about the elderly people justification for the statute? What about the grandchildren and the children of these elderly people? How do they fit into this scheme? They get the same benefit, and they're not all that elderly, as I understand it. Just another they're just sort of a class of nobility in California. <laughs> they inherit this tax break, and uh, it goes on from generation to generation. It's just another policy judgment that has been made by the state of California. And I agree fully with Justice Scalia. The last thing in the world that you want to do is start taking your red pencil and mark, uh, uh, start going through... Well, but uh, Mr. Lee, you've argued one. that this is an acquisition-based value tax, and that does not at all fit uh, with being able to put, give commercial property to your children. It does not at all fit with a downward adjustment, uh, which is unlimited... And, and, and it seems to me that you have to, you have to respond to that because um, the, 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 the supposition here, the charge, is that there's a favored group and you attack that in the very opening part of your, uh, of, 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 of your submission to us. And, and it seems to me that the hodgepodge uh, created by these exemptions uh, strongly undercuts the acquisition value of theory that you advance for this tax. It is inconsistent. There, there are two exceptions that I'm aware of, and they are, uh, they are exceptions to the acquisition value. Um, they are not at issue in this case. They would certainly be severable, but I submit that they also fit within the rational basis test. In the case of the, uh, of the, uh, of the family uh, uh, passing on of, uh, of the favorable basis, that's simply an assumption uh, that is no stranger to tax laws in other contexts in an attempt to treat the family the same and treat, uh, treat family the properties the same and, and, and preserve it uh, across generations. It's reflected in our inheritance taxes as well. But it hardly fits the acquisition value theory because at the time of the transfer within the family... That is correct. ...there should be some kind of valuation capable of being placed on... Of course there could. Just like there could at the time that uh, my grandfather died and uh, my father got a step up in basis in, in his income tax property. But there is nothing in the Equal Protection Clause or the Rational Basis Test that says that you can't adopt a basic acquisition value test and then, have, and then make it a modified uh, acquisition value test. Let's assume that um, what California had done was to simply repeal its property tax. It doesn't exist anymore. And then enact in its place, if you will, maybe they call it an acquisition value tax or an acquisition price tax or a sales tax on real property. And then permit people to pay it off over a period of time. I assume there would be no problem with that. And yet when they accomplish something that is very similar to that, uh, uh, certainly that should not raise constitutional questions. With regard to... Uh, yes, it really isn't similar because the real estate property tax pays for a, a group of services that the owner of the property gets, police protection, fire protection, schools, and so forth, and you get neighbors who get the same benefits out of the state, uh, identical kinds of property and same number of children going to school and the like, and one of them pays a very large tax, and the other pays a very small tax for the same state benefits. Sure. something counterintuitive about this. Well, I think what's really counterintuitive is not a sales tax. Just the assumption, just the assumption that that's the way we've done it over the years. But it is similar in this respect, or I have two responses to that, Justice Stevens. One is, 
that we have never assumed that there has to be a one-to-one matching benefits to what you pay from the tax. Tax policy can be used uh, for the achievement of a number of other non-tax, and that, that's, that's simply one of the, uh, the, the premises of our, of our tax policies. And the other is, if we just said that uh, we, we will use those revenues uh, for the same purposes, I will submit this. You read every word in my opponent's brief, and you listen to every word that has been said here orally today, and what it necessarily all comes back to is that you have to, as a consequence of something that is said in the 14th Amendment, tie your property, if you're going to call it a property tax, you have to tie it. You have to tie the assessment system to, um, uh, to current value. Uh, there are cases in which, this Supreme Court, in which this Court has said that that is not the case in related contexts. It can be tied, for example, to nominal value or par value rather than, um, rather than current value. Say just a word about... Um, uh, the other argument that is made, and that is the right to travel argument. In the first place, uh, it's not properly before this court if the court applies usual prudential rules, because even though uh, Ms. Nordlinger has Article Three case or controversy standing uh, uh, to make the argument, she is not a person affected. And under Moose Lodge versus Urbis, which is square on point on this issue, since she is not one who has moved interstate, she does not have standing make this argument. And on the merits, this just isn't the kind of case, even if she were from out of state, this just isn't a right to travel uh, kind of case. It applies equally. The the triggering feature is not travel. The triggering feature is uh, um, acquisition of the property. And uh, it would be an improper uh, expansion of of, uh, uh, this court's right to travel cases. What the case comes down to, I submit, is this. Inflation in the price of real estate in the state of California over the past 20 years has been a reality. It's going to cause some problems to someone. Uh, It caused serious problems in the 1960s and 1970s. It has caused other problems, uh, as Mr. Hall has pointed out, since 1978. There are six briefs, uh, amicus briefs, who say that, this, the, that uh, the problems that uh, Proposition 13 has created are very serious. There are a few more than that that say that what it cured, the problems that it eliminated prior to 1978, are much more serious. Now, who's right? Who's right? Are the problems of possibly being taxed out of your homes and not knowing what kind of financial obligations you're going to have more serious than the problem of an imbalance between property tax uh, between the, uh, the value and the amount of tax you pay. I don't know. I don't think anyone, well, different Californians will have different views on that issue, but that's a matter for Californians to solve themselves. Of course, an easy way to solve it would just be as, as inflation uh, pushes the price up and up, just lower the tax rate. I mean, there's no reason why the fact that there's an unreasonable inflation in the, in the value of property has to result in unreasonably high taxes. You're dead right. And... Uh, but you would be the last person in the world, Justice Scalia, to suggest that because of the existence of that alternative, we ought to strike down the one that... Uh, of course, there's another solution for some of these elderly people who have suddenly found their $10,000 homes are worth a million dollars. Some of them can sell those homes and still live, you know. Of course. Yeah. Of course. And, and I can give you a lot of other examples. Examples abound 
of uh, how we could eliminate anomalies in the tax laws. But that is not the judicial function. The judicial function is a very simple one for which every member of this court should be very grateful, and that is that you just ask, was there a serious problem that California was trying to deal with? And second, did they deal with it in a responsible way uh, that demonstrated some kind of a reasonable fit, some kind of a reasonable fit between what they were trying to do with or what they were trying to deal with and what they, uh, and what they in fact did. I submit that in this case, uh, the answer to that question, uh, uh, the answer to that question has to be yes and that the judgment of the uh, lower courts should be affirmed. Thank you, Mr. Lane. Mr. Hall, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, with respect to Justice Kennedy's question about uh, exceptions to the uh, acquisition value uh, premise of this uh, system, I'd also point out that all of property that has a 1975 base year, which is approximately 44% of the property in the state, uh, that is not operating according to the acquisition value premise. Uh, it's all, it has, it's had its basis increased up to 1975 irrespective of what the acquisition date or acquisition value uh, was. Uh, with respect to uh, whether we are asserting that there is a need for a current market value system, uh, that's clearly not what we're saying, and I think our, our briefs indicate that uh, absolutely clearly. Uh, what we're saying is you can't have a, system, a property tax system in which some people are taxed at current market values and other people are taxed at antiquated assessed uh, values. And this is not the first time that this court has ever considered or that there's ever been a welcome stranger system. Indeed, there was one in, in the Webster County case. And finally, I don't agree that, uh, with Mr. Lee's characterization of what this case boils down to. I think really what it comes down to is whether this court really wants to get into the whole business of looking at the way state administers, administrators have administered state law and whether they've reconciled state law policies with their own policies and whether they've strayed too far from official state policies in their implementation of the law. And that's the precise implication of what the respondents uh, attempted distinguishing of the Allegheny cases, is that this court would get into the business of measuring the compliance of state law officials, state executive and local officials, with how far they've strayed from some official state policy as they've tried to adopt their own policies on a local basis or executive basis to temper those official policies. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Hall. The case is submitted. We'll hear our...